Um, If you have your Bible, find your way to Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2, we've been in this series, I think this is the eighth week that we've been in Romans already. Um, It doesn't seem like that long, but um, to me it doesn't, maybe it does to you, like we're on the eighth one and we're just now finishing chapter 2. But um, we we purposely want to slow down and look at what Paul is calling the church to, what Paul was, was calling these Christians in Rome to, and see how then that affects our life. And that's why we've, we've called this first part of this series our problem, because if you've noticed, if you've been with us, or if you haven't, this is what's happened. We've been talking about judgment and sin for eight weeks now. And, and because that's how Paul starts the book. But what is good in that, and sometimes you're like, oh my gosh, that's enough of that. But the, the more we focus on the reality of God's coming judgment and, and condemnation of those who are in sin, then the more amazing his grace is when we get to look and remind ourselves of the gospel. That, that so often we can just be used to the gospel message. We can, if you've been in you've heard that, but, but you, sometimes it loses its m- amazing aspect of it. And so it's good to be reminded then that those that are in sin are left in condemnation, and there is judgment coming. And so it's healthy to do that. Um, If you will, we're going to go ahead and read our passage in Romans chapter 2. We're going to read verse 17 all the way through 29, the end of the chapter. And so in Romans chapter 2, verse 17, Paul continues talking to the Jewish Christians of Rome and says, But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God, And know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law. And if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You say to the one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have written the code in circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. But his praise is not from man, but from God. If you will pray with me as we ask the Spirit to guide us through our time today. Father God, we thank you that you've given us your truth. I just pray that, that when we see in Paul's writing today, God, that we would understand who we are as a body of Christ. That we would see who we are as a church and how our lives should be represented by that fact. God, we just pray that, that we would not change your truth to make it comfortable, God, but we would allow your spirit to implant your truth even deeper in our hearts so that it might affect change in our lives and our relationships. And so in Jesus' name we pray, amen. 
So when we're looking at a, a passage like this, it, it, it's really easy to be disconnected. It's real easy to say, okay, Paul's continuing to just show the Jews how they're not figuring it out. And it's easy to look at that and think, okay, that's good for them. But what we have to do is, is see what is Paul talking about and then how does that then apply to them first, but then how does that be, get drawn back into our idea, and, and what I see in that, and what we're going to focus on this idea, is kind of a failure of religion, or, or a kind of a ne- neglect of religion. What is religion neglected, and religion in a sense just of a system of worship? And we're, we're looking at this idea, because those, those last few verses, really in verse 29, the middle of that, it says that, that it's by the Spirit and not by the letter, and that's what we're, we're looking at this idea, that in those few words there, Paul's showing us how the church should be, how it applies to our life, how we should live our lives in that aspect. And, and it's, it's healthy to do that, right? It's healthy to look at your life, to look at what you're doing and think why, right? Why is a good question if you're trying to figure out where your life is going? Why is a good question when you're, when you're being honest about it? Why is not a good question if you're just wanting to figure out another way to do something to make you more comfortable, Right? You can say, why are we doing it this way? Because it's uncomfortable. And so in that, you're just rationalizing with asking the question. But today we're going to look at it, not in a rationalize what we do, but an honest look at is what we are doing place us with the Jews that Paul's writing to or to the reality of what he's drawing that body to. And, and that's what we see first and we need to look at first is this idea that, that there's a neglect of religion. That, that religion has neglected certain aspects of a Christian life, if we bring it to our time, that, that we need to understand. And that's what you see in these first parts of this verse, primarily 17 and 22. And, and when we say religion, I'm just talking, if you want to just go general dictionary, it's a particular system of faith and worship. So just this idea of religion, a particular system of faith and worship. For us, that would be, as a Christian, what is our system of practice and worship? What is it that our faith deems as worship? And that's what we're, it's what we're thinking of when we think of religion. It's this particular system. So as a system, what has religion failed to neglect and how does that work its way out? First, it's that it, it has an incorrect focus. If we look at what Paul's talking about, verses 17 and 20, really those first ones, if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God, those first couple verses, if we didn't know the context surrounding, it's, he, Paul's basically saying, here's, here's the good way to do it, right? He's saying that this is what you should be doing, but we know that he's not saying this in a positive manner, but he's using it to say this is what it should be, and here's how you've fallen or failed from that. It's an incorrect focus, and what he's getting at is that it's incorrect because it focuses on the external rather than the internal. That it focuses on what's happening outwardly versus internally. And when we do that, we have this incorrect focus of a system of religion. And then that leads those people that are caught in that further and further away from the truth without necessarily knowing it. Right? And that's what the Jews did. Right? This is a perfect description of an incorrect focus because they boasted in their racial and religious privileges as God's chosen people. And it never got down into another. They focused on their racial and religious privileges instead of actually understanding that it was a heart that needed to change, not the system that changed them. And that's what you see over and over again in Scripture is this idea that they have an incorrect focus. And so what you have to do then to kind of bring that into an application is 
do you trust in the system rather than the one that set the system up? And, and the easy way to ask yourself that is how do you view people? Because people that are stuck in, in, in the system, that they rely on the system, then people are just means to an end. And, and maybe you've had this time where if, if, you, if you've been around people for any time, you realize that people are messed up, right? That the world is broken. You, you are broken regardless of what you might think, right? I, I have to admit to myself often, man, you just screwed it up all the time, right? But it's okay to do that. But what happens then if you're stuck on a system and you have this incorrect focus, then, then you don't want to mess with people's problems, Right? You just want to come in, you want to focus on this external man. Everything was great, and, but I don't want to mess, get messy in relationships. I don't want to mess with people's brokenness because then that changes something. And so if that's you, if that's your mind, when you gather as a body of Christ, if, you're fo- if you don't want to mess with people's problem, then there's a good chance that you're focusing on the incorrect thing and that you're stuck in a system to gain salvation instead of an inward change. But it's not just that, that it's an incorrect focus, it's an incorrect application of that. If you look at verse 21 and 23, it says, You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? While you say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You abhor idols, do you rob temples? And what he's saying there is that this, does your system, does your religion have an application in your life? Does it actually come down into your life, or do you just tell other people not to do these things, and then you do them yourself? Right here, he's kind of referring back to what we talked about a few weeks ago, where, where Jesus does this with the Ten Commandments, and he says that if you don't commit adultery, but if you do it in your mind, it's the same thing. And that's what Paul's coming back to, is because most of the people here, these good Jewish people, could say, well, I haven't committed adultery by the act. But that's when Paul would say, well, do you do it in your mind? Do you seek out other avenues for satisfaction or faithfulness and so what we have to ask ourselves if we've truly gotten to this neglect of religion is does the beliefs that you have make it into your everyday life and thought does the the doctrine what we the the practical application of theology that we believe actually make it into your actions and your thoughts because if it doesn't then you're you're stuck in this neglection that, that religion and, and the church, sadly, today has been teaching. Do your beliefs affect a change in your heart and mind? When you open the word, you apply it to your life in a way that it changes how you live. Because if you actually understand Scripture, if you look at Scripture and you hold it high, you can't continue doing the things that you are. It's just, it's not possible. And so, is the system of religion not allowing you to apply the truth that you've been given into your actions and your life? And, and what you, a way to work that out is, is to ask yourself, what actually saves someone? To get down to this idea that if you're actually applying it to your life, ask yourself, what saves people? Because if we look at the Jews and we go back to this time, they'd been given the truth, right? God had given them their word. He'd chosen them as a people. They held that truth high. But the problem is they held that truth so high that they forgot that it wasn't just the, the, who they were that saved them, that it was something else. They never applied it into their everyday lives. They couldn't remember how they had gotten it, that it was given to them. 
So then all of a sudden their system had replaced the focus and the application never was there. Instead, they turned into this moralistic judging, like that we're better than those people because they don't have the truth, all the while realizing or failing to realize that even though they had the truth, they never applied it to their life. They never applied it to the life. So if the truth of your religion is moldable then and, and changing it, then you're not really worshiping God, you're worshiping yourself. And see, that's what was happening to the Jews, is they had the truth, but they applied the truth strictly to only this external focus, and yes, I did that, but they were just molding it to fit their needs and to exclude other people. And so ask yourself that, does the truth that you actually believe, when you look at the Bible and you hold it high, as, as we do here at Watershed, if you hold it high, does that truth actually make it into your life? Or do you mold it to make it more comfortable in certain situations? Because if it's God's word, then we can't mold it. Right? I, I, think, of, I think of Lord of the Rings. I don't know why, but I think of when, when he finally gets the sword because he's the true king. Right? And he says it, can't, it has no other master. Right? And the ring, is the, it's, 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 that's the same thing that we do with truth. Right? We try to mold it when we're not the ones that forged it. We can't change it to fit our needs if we're truly living our life by that. And that's what Paul's saying to the Jewish people, saying, do you not tell people not to steal, but do you steal? Like, do you not teach yourself, right? And we do that naturally. We look at people and say, well, they say one thing, but they don't do something, they don't live that right. Right? You have people in your lives that are that way. You have people that, that, that you think are one way, and they'll even tell you this, but then a week later, they're not doing it, and you're like, what in the world? right? But what happens is we focus on those people and we never bring it back to ourselves and say, well, is that applying to my life the same way? Are they saying the same thing about me when they do that? And that's the easy way to ask yourself if this actually applies in your life, if the truth makes it into your actions, is ask yourself how you treat others, right? Are you quick to forgive yourself but not others? Are you quick to say, oh, I screwed that up. It's okay, I'll do better. But then when someone else messes up, you don't talk to them for weeks, months. Like, oh, I can't be around them. They're a bad influence. Well, maybe you're a bad influence on yourself, right? And, and so often we've done that to ourselves. But think about it. Are you quick to forgive yourself, but you hold other people to a different standard? And what Paul's saying here is that's what the Jews were doing. They're holding the Gentiles to the standard that they didn't even keep themselves. And that's a neglect of religion to understand that. And then ultimately, we see what happens. If you look at verse 23 and 24, it says, You boast in the law and dishonor God by breaking the law, for it is written, this is Isaiah, that the name of the Lord is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. So the, the end result, if you will, of a neglect of religion is that God is lowered in his position, functionally. Right? And so for the, the Jewish system, people were then elevated. Like, it was God's law, and then they were elevated because they kept God's law. And so you had those that were outside and those that were inside, and they were elevated above really who God was because the truth allowed them to elevate themselves. But what happens sadly today is that, that many times it's not God necessarily that's lowered, but it's attributes of God that are raised above. And so we just want to preach grace. So we preach grace, but we never preach that the only reason you need grace is because people are sinners, right? And so we, we have this elevation of just one part of God instead of all of him. And so he's functionally lower because we're neglecting to talk about, talk about every other aspect of God. 
That's why it's good that we focus on judgment because it's a reality that's going to happen. And we don't understand his grace apart from his judgment. We don't understand our judgment apart from sin. And then that changes the way we see the gospel. Because if we're truly understanding of who we are, that we're in sin, that not one of us has done that, that one of us can claim that we're not sinners, then we see the gospel in a different light. And God's elevated to the highest point, which is where he should be, but so often we neglect to place him there because we try to act just like the Jews are where we keep people to standards that we ourselves don't keep. And so we neglect this understanding of who we are. And then the rest of this passage shows us really, I would say, two main ways that, that religion is neglectful in the way it applies to our life. And the first is that we have a need for repentance. We neglect this idea that we need to repent because we're sinners. And we look at that in verse 22 and 23 again. If we come up there, it says, You who say you must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? What? You abhor idols and you rob the temples. You who boast in the law dishonor these things, for it is written the name of Jews. See, he's saying that everyone does these things. He's not saying, do you in a sense. He's saying, do you, because he's making you realize that they were doing it. Right? So if we're actually sinners, then we need to repent of that. We do these things, these level of the way we're supposed to live our life, and we've talked about earlier that God's law is the, the level that we're up to attain. It's the, the requirement that we're supposed to live. If we truly can't keep that, then we're sinners. Right? He says it later in 3.23, that all have fallen short. Right? He says in, in, in 3. 312, that no one does good, right? No, not one. That there's no one that can claim that they're without sin. And so we all need to understand that we have to repent because we all sin, right? And so if we're all sinners and we stand condemned, then we need salvation. And we don't understand that until we repent of our sins can we gain salvation. But how can we repent, right? That, that leaves the question, okay, if I'm supposed to, then how? Right? How, how is that possible? And, and what is that in repentance? Just turning away from that, we need to realize that first, that repentance comes from an awareness of your sin. We can't skip past that too quickly. That if we're not aware of our sin in our lives, then we're not aware of the need to repent of them. That's the first thing in, in Acts 2.38, Peter's the first sermon, this amazing sermon that he just stands up and preaches. The end, they say, what are we to do? And he says, repent and be baptized. Right? Repent. You have to turn from that. It's just acknowledges this awareness of sin that they had led them to understanding what to do. And Peter says, repent of that. And so we can't neglect to remind ourselves that we need repentance. And we also need to realize that we need help. Right? Look, at, look at how the, Paul describes the Jews in, in 26 and 27. If a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? The one who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have written the code in circumcision but break the law. And what he's saying there is that the physical aspect's not enough. The, the, the physical thing's not enough because he's pointing again here that this is the second time now that the Gentiles have been better than the Jews and he's saying, no, those that don't have the mark of the covenant, that don't have the circumcision, then they're the ones that are doing what the law requires. Even though they don't know it, 
Even though that it's not a point to salvation that they do this, but they're condemning you because they do what the law is required, yet you aren't. And so we need help because the physical actions or expressions aren't good enough to lead us to salvation. And so often we need to repent of the physical actions as well. Right? But we have to understand that it's a, it's a heart problem, not an external. Tim Keller calls this that, that the Jews were guilty of idols of the heart, not the hand. So it wasn't their actions that led to that, but it was the idols of the heart that led to their improper actions that needed to be repented of. And you have to have help in that a- aspect. And the last reason that we need repentance, again, is because you're condemned. Not only are we sinners, but sin is condemned. You can't stay as a sinner if you're going to have salvation. You're condemned out part of that. And so outside the law, outside of living outside of God's law, abiding in sin leads to condemnation, it leads to death, because judgment will come. But what we need to understand and what you need to do to bring this into your life is this idea that remind yourself that the Jews had the truth, yet they failed to realize it. They'd been given the truth. They had wisdom and truth given to them by God, yet they failed to apply it to their life. And so what we have to do is we have to be aware of thinking that we're any better than they were. We have to realize as Christians that our tendency is to place ourselves above God and to forget that we are condemned because of who we are. That it's only in Christ that we're outside of that condemnation. Warren Wiersbe says it this way. He says, The, the tragedy of the Jews is that they depended, depended on this physical mark instead of the spiritual reality it represented. And so many times we ourselves now focus on a physical expression, a physical mark, gathering, worship, Bible study, praying for people. We focus on these external things, these physical marks, instead of the spiritual reality that's driving them in our lives. And so often we get guilty of just this physical expression. And we preach that. And so we have people that are doing what is quote a good Christian would do yet they're far from God because they've never realized that in their sin it's not a physical expression that saves them it's an internal change and when we look at that we get to this last part that we need to realize and that's the necessity of regeneration and I know that's a big word I know I I try not to throw these big words out there but regeneration is something we have to understand that if you if you want a definition I put it in, in the app if you're following along in the notes. But a, a, the best one that I find is, is from Wayne Grudem in his Systematic Theology. He says, it's a secret act of God by which he imparts new spiritual life to us. Secret act of God because we don't know necessarily how or when that happens all the time. It's close to salvation, but it's not the same. But it's a secret act of God. Most people have heard it uh, that would probably think of the same thing as regeneration as being born again. Right, and that's, what, that's what we see. John 1, 12 and 13 is probably the best way to see that. In John 1, 12, he says, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to be children of God. He gave the right to be children of God. And then in verse 13 of John chapter 1, he says, Who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. He's talking regeneration. That they're born of God. It's the spiritual life that was been imparted to them. 
We have to realize that that's necessary in the life of a believer. If we're truly going to repent and turn from our sin. It's the same idea that we see in Ezekiel 36 when he says he's going to replace the heart of stone and give a heart of flesh. It's this new heart, this new life that God imparts in us. And it's necessary for us to understand that regeneration has to happen. Right, because so many people get stuck in this idea that if you'll just keep, keep pushing, keep pushing, that eventually someone will turn or that you'll decide. But it doesn't happen that way, right? We're selfish by nature. We, we choose the things that, that mold us, that, that choose the things that we desire. And if you have children, you see that. Because from birth, they're selfish, right? As soon as they can start doing something for themselves, they're taking toys away from siblings, or they're doing everything. They're manipulating the system to be for them. We have to understand that regeneration is necessary for repentance, but we don't necessarily know when it happens. One of the best understandings of this is C.S. Lewis. When he talks about his salvation, he talks about going, and I can't quote it, by memory, but he's talking about going to a place that when he set off, he didn't believe, and when he arrived, he believed. He says he doesn't know why, because he says that in my journey, I wasn't there in thought or emotion, but for some reason, he believed. And that's what he took as this idea that, that God had regenerated, he'd imparted this new life to him somehow, and now everything that he knew about it, he believed. It was this idea that all of a sudden, He'd been regenerated. This new life had been imparted to him because he believed all of a sudden. That it wasn't just these ideas or concepts, but it was a reality in his heart. He understood it. And then that then leads us to the ability to repent. So we'd say that regeneration is necessary for repentance. Apart from the Spirit, we'll be stuck in either license, just do whatever you want to, Right? That, that we've been saved, it's okay, so we're we supposed to do this. We can just live however we want to. Eventually, grace will win. Eventually, God will woo all people to himself. Eventually, people will be saved regardless of what they do because how could a loving God condemn people? So you just live your life, right? And we have people that teach that. Or the other thing that happens most often within the church is if you're not focusing on the Spirit's action in our life, then you get stuck in this legalistic idea that says you have to be a certain way or you're not a Christian. You have to be a certain, we have to look a certain part, you have to dress a certain way, you have to have the, the right family. But that's not true. Only the Spirit can change a heart, not a system. It's God working in people's lives through a gospel call. And then we need to understand too that, that regeneration is necessary because the gospel demands or requires an inward change. You see that in verse 29. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart. Which is kind of a, a weird way to say that, because all of a sudden he turns circumcision to this idea, how do you, has a heart that way. But what he's talking about is this idea that it changes inwardly. The gospel call requires or demands an inward change, and that only happens through the work of the Spirit in your life. It's of the heart, it's by the Spirit. You can't do that yourself. And a lot of times that's the first hurdle for many people understanding the gospel because they can't get over the fact that they're not good enough or they can ever earn their way there. Because we're driven in our culture 
that if you just try hard enough, you're going to get it, right? If you just keep doing these things, that, that hard work pays off in the end. But most of the time, that's a lie, right? Because I know plenty of hard people that get passed over for promotions, that, that don't get what they get. And the person that didn't deserve it is the one that gets it. So how did that work out for them, right? It's not about just pull yourself up and go and put your head down and work. The gospel requires inward change. It's not just behavior modification. Your behavior will change, but that's because of your affections are different. And so when a new heart is imparted, when new life is imparted into us, this regeneration happens, all of a sudden our affections are changed, and our affections change, our behavior change, because our affections are what drive the way we live our lives. And so if Christ is really the highest desire in our life, it changes everything about the way we live our life. And when we preach that way and we teach the gospel that way, it frees us from telling us to have people, you have to do this. And we preach the gospel that, yes, we're all in sin, we're all condemned, but thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Savior. And when he's placed the affections, everything else changes. You don't have to change behavior. If they truly understand, they're truly regenerated, if the, the regenerate heart changes, the affections are set on Christ so much that everything else will change in their life. And so ask yourself, has it? Do you fight that desire? Because what happens if, even when you place Christ there, even when he's the highest of your affections, what happens then is the world comes back and says, wait, you're following this old, outdated system, that there's no way that that's right. And so we mold it then to fit our needs, to give us comfort and security. Then all of a sudden, the comfort and security are our primary affection, and we have to repent and turn. Repentance is a lifestyle and a lifelong thing. It's not just a one-time deal. We always constantly have to be reminding ourselves of the gospel that Christ died for us, not because we were worthy. And that changes our affections all the time. Changes our affections all the time. And if you look back into from the, the Reformation forward, that's what you see happening over and over again. That people are calling us back to remember that the gospel needs to be preached to ourselves daily so that we can continue to remember where our affections are. Because when we understand that, we realize that, that regeneration magnifies God's grace. That when we're given this new life, imparted this new life by God, all of a sudden we see what an amazing gift His Son was. It changes everything. It magnifies everything. The gospel becomes this new life, not simply an entryway into something that you might think will be better for you, but then it's this lifeblood, this complete new life. All of a sudden the law is not just this system that's rigged against you that you can't ever do it. And the law no longer crushes you because we realize that in Christ he upheld the requirement of the law. That you're not under that requirement because you're in Christ because he died to fulfill that requirement. So then the law is not this crushing system and you understand it in a completely different way. And you realize why you can live your life the way that God has called us to. Because you understand the grace that he's given that he gave his only son when you didn't deserve it. Yet he gave them to you. Freely offered. So when we look at this idea, we need to see that, that so often re religion, this system that has been put in place so often neglects the need of repentance and regeneration. 
It so often does that. And that's not me saying that the church isn't important. Because see, you get people that say that and it neglects these things and says, well, if the church is just broken, then the church doesn't. Absolutely not. What happens is we have to allow ourselves to be in a system that focuses on our need to repent and the regeneration offered to us by God that happens through his spirit and then that allows people that are broken together together. That allows people who are diverse to be united. That's why the church is such an amazing place because only through the gospel implications will you ever have people that are different embrace one another. They will seek reconciliation regardless of of requirements on their lives. But you have to have both. If we look at this, you have to have repentance and you have to have regeneration because if you're stuck with just repentance, then you get stuck in legalism. If you just say you have to repent, then eventually it's gonna turn into this moralistic, legalistic idea that just change and be a better person. But you've forgotten and neglected the regeneration that gives you the ability that actually does that for you. But if you get caught just focusing on regeneration, then you live this licensed life that says it doesn't matter once you're saved because you've been given this new life. Just do whatever you want to do. But you've forgotten this idea that you need to repent continually because so often your desires are drawn away. So when you have both of those, you're free to live, right? When you understand that the judge, Christ, actually died to be judged and was judged, then you realize the freedom that you have in a gospel life once you're united with Christ. And then it's the system actually is amazing because then you come here and not to get recharged, but to celebrate what you've been given. And that's why it's such an amazing thing. That's why we say in our membership class that, that you benefit from being together because you see this expression of what God has done in our lives individually and then collectively we worship him because of that. Because none of us deserved it. Because we're all sinners. Yet he sent him anyways. So as you live your life and you, you try to apply this to you, realize that, that Paul right here, he's talking to the Jews and saying that your system is completely broken because you don't understand that it's an inward transformation that has to happen. And so as you're living your life, remember that aspect that when you're drawn just do the right things or when you see someone else and you, you're quick to judge that how can they do that realize that it's not an external change it's an internal change that saves us it's not behavior modification it's a new life completely imparted to us by God working through the proclamation of the gospel that we were all sinners yet Christ died for us and when we remember that you can stand firm in a world that's crazy, that seems to be crumbling, culture deteriorating, and we can be firm and confident because the one that created the universe has died for us. The one that holds all things together gave his life so that we might live and have confidence, not now, but for eternity. Let's pray. Father God, we, yeah, we thank you for the church. And we thank you that you've given us and called us to be your body that goes into a culture to preach your truth. God, I pray that, that we would be people that don't neglect to realize that we are sinners in need of repentance and that repentance can only happen 
in someone's life by your spirit imparting a new life and giving them a new heart and regenerating them from death to life. I just pray that that would not lose our heart's captivity, that our affections would be turned toward you alone. And I just pray that it would be an ever-present hope in our life that we know that we are secure and confident in your son Jesus Christ alone. In his name we pray, amen.